Khrushchev tear down this wall. The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. I'm not a crook. If you like your health care plan, you'll be able to keep your health care plan. Source for the latest news on money, politics, prophecy, and preparedness. And now your host, the editor-in-chief of ChristianMoney.com and the author of more than 30 books, Jim Paris. All right. Hello, everybody. Welcome to our guest segment. I want to set this up. Um, if you are somebody that is fascinated with serial killers, I personally am, and that's partly because I teach self-defense classes and I teach women how to be safe. And I'm super interested in these people because of their minds and how they trick people into going with them like Ted Bundy did and some of the tactics that they use. And the Golden State Killer is one of the most unique cases in American history in terms of serial killers. There's so much that is different about this case. And I want to set this up and then we'll bring in our guest here in just a moment. The Golden State Killer is a serial killer, serial rapist and burglar who committed at least 13 murders, more than 50 rapes and over 100 burglaries in California from 1974 to 1986. He is also believed to be responsible for at least three crime, spree, crime sprees throughout California, each of which spawned a different nickname in the press before it became evident that they were committed by the same person. And there's so much about this case that is unique, including how they caught the guy, which we're going to get into that tonight, including how he took a break. Uh, from killing, uh, which is unheard of among serial killers. Um, and and uh, just the large area that he covered, which is, again, unique among serial killers. And joining us tonight is co-author of the book, really the book of record on this. And he's been with us uh, two times before is our good friend, Keith Comos. Uh, the book is The Case Files of the Golden State Killer, East Area Rapist. Keith, good to have you back with us, sir. Hey, Jim, great to talk to you again. You know, th this whole issue of serial killers is becoming really popular. My daughter was telling me uh, about how her and her friends are all fascinated in watching this Ted Bundy series that is on Netflix. And I was just wondering, with your books being so successful, is there any talk of anything developing in that realm for you, uh, this becoming some kind of a, a larger presentation by way of a documentary? There have been um, some people approach us, um, some talks going on. Uh, no matter what we would do going forward, it's a huge undertaking. And when it comes to the Golden State Killer, we're stuck in this holding pattern of waiting to see how the trial will go. And it's a huge trial, 26 charges. And uh, really, it's hard to know what's going to be at the end of it. Um, but I I'm glad to see that there's such interest in these sorts of things. And like you were saying, the self-defense classes, that should be a required course for, for anybody in teaching the awareness and, and, and everything so that people can stay safe out there. Because as we're learning... Um, through all these cold cases being solved, through the forensic genealogy and everything, there are a lot of 
uh, bad people out there, and they're the type of people that you would never expect. So it's good to be safe. Well, one of the things when we teach children self-defense, I, I teach martial arts, have a martial arts school. When we, when we teach children self-defense, we, we tell them don't look for someone that is, you know, scary, like the so-called stranger danger. That was how they used to teach kids. And so kids were looking for someone like with a big black top hat and a trench coat. But adults do the same thing, too. And I found myself today, I was looking at this case again, and I looked at uh, one of the the younger pictures um, of D'Angelo in his police officer's uniform. And he was like a clean cut, normal looking guy that you you would never think of that guy looking at him at that time as being somebody that was anything other than just an upstanding young police officer. And you're taught as a kid to trust police officers. And obviously there are people in all walks of life and all professions that can turn out to be some, some bad people. Yeah, absolutely. And, and just, you know, the physical appearance in so many of these uh, cases like Ted Bundy, for example, uh, you know, handsome guy, charming and used all the tricks in the book, including uh, fake casts. And he had uh, crutches and, you know, every uh, strategy you could use to trick someone into, you know, getting into the car, helping him and, and those kinds of things. And, uh, man, I'll tell you, uh, I, I tell my students Ted Bundy was like a 10th degree black belt in serial killing. I mean, the stuff that he that he did uh, and almost all of his victims pretty much willingly went with him, which is just unbelievable, especially in areas where they were warned that things were going on and to be on your guard. And yet they would never have thought, you know, that it was him. Now, in this case, um, set this up for us, because a few of the things, obviously, people uh, might be tuning in who aren't, who aren't familiar with this case. And for those that, that don't know it, in our archives, we have two prior interviews with Keith Comos, which gets into the whole long story. But those shows have commercials in them. This show is commercial free, so we'll get a better opportunity to kind of set this up. So, Keith, maybe start by just giving us the thumbnail a sketch of you know when this started um how long it took place and and how many crimes uh, and the nature of the crimes that we know of that were committed by this guy sure the first major confirmed series that this offender is responsible for started in visalia california which is in the central part of the state in 1973 and 1974 he started out there as a peeper and as a burglar who would enter unoccupied homes, tear the place apart, cause minor damage, and spend a lot of time rearranging the undergarments of the women and the teenage girls who lived in the homes. So there was a sexual undertone to these, what they were calling nuisance burglaries, because there weren't a lot of things of value taken. Uh, he was called the Visalia Ransacker during this phase. The Ransacker escalated, and he began stalking certain victims and focusing in on them. And in 1975, he escalated to kidnapping or attempting to kidnap a teenage girl from her home in the middle of the night. Her father woke up as this was happening, and he went outside just as the ransacker was dragging this girl away. And the ransacker dropped the girl, shot the father to death, even though he could have gotten away. Um, it was almost a retaliatory murder. And then he ran off into the night. The victim's name, the man who was shot, was Claude Snelling. He was a professor at the local college and very involved in his church and community. And the town really felt the loss. Amazingly, the ransacker continued stalking young women in this small town of Visalia, uh, so much so that he became predictable. And a police officer cornered him 
during a stakeout, and the ransacker shot at the police officer and escaped. Luckily, the police officer was relatively unharmed. Then about six months later, 200 miles away, a home invasion rapist began targeting the Sacramento area. Because this guy's MO had some distinctive similarities and there were some radical differences in uh, physical description, police didn't know that this was the same guy that had operated in Visalia. The offender was now more widely known and he became called the East Area Rapist. And he had a, a terrifying way of operating. He'd enter an unoccupied home in the middle of the night. He'd awaken his victim with a flashlight, either lone females or, or later on couples. He'd point a gun at them, force the woman to tie the man up with shoelaces if a man was present. He'd issue threats, but he'd lull them into a false sense of security by saying, I only want food and money. If you cooperate, I won't hurt you. And they, they had little choice but to cooperate. He'd tie the woman's wrist behind her back very tightly uh, so that it cut off circulation. He'd retie the man's wrist very tightly. Then he'd leave them and he'd begin rummaging through the house and ransacking it. He'd put dishes on their backs from their own kitchen to make sure that he could hear them from another part of the house if they tried to move. Eventually, he'd tell the female that he couldn't find her purse or something like that. He'd lead her out of the room, and then he'd sexually assault her. And the attacks would go on for hours. He would stay in the home. He'd eat their food. He'd um, take some of their cash and personal jewelry. He'd take the wedding rings right off of their fingers. And he always wore masks. He always wore gloves. He disguised his voice. No one had any idea who this guy was. And the East Area Rapist crimes went from 1976 to 1979. Then a similar crime series began in disparate parts of South, uh, Southern California, which is over 300 miles away from Sacramento. The crimes were very similar to East Area Rapist crimes, only now the perpetrator was killing his victims at the end uh, um, of the attack. He murdered couples and lone women near Santa Barbara, Ventura County, Irvine, and an area of Orange County called Dana Point. The murders were more sporadic, and they went on from 1979 to 1981. Then there was a five-year gap with no known crimes at all, which, as you mentioned, is very atypical for this type of offender. And then a final murder of a lone female in Irvine in 1986. Then there was almost nothing. The only indication that he was still even alive was that he would call former victims and occasionally taunt them. And this case was frustrating. Um, it stayed unsolved for decades. And the victims who survived him were left living in fear, living without any answers or any resolution. There were thousands of small clues because there were so many offenses, but no one could make any of the puzzle pieces fit. The offender was careful enough to leave misleading clues, issue misleading statements to victims. There was no real way to easily piece together anything about his identity. He never left an identifiable fingerprint. He never made a major mistake. And he never even entered the wrong house at the wrong time and, and got shot by a, a homeowner that was at the ready. Uh, over 40 years of investigation by hundreds of different law enforcement officials over the years, and no one was even close to solving this. But as, as we talked about last time, through the miracle of DNA science, the availability of open source genealogical DNA, and the innovation and persistence of several law enforcement officials and civilians, uh, detectives were able to match the unknown killer's DNA sample the distant relatives that build out a family tree that included thousands of names and use investigative and scientific methods to finally narrow it down to one person. 
Yeah, and this is this is also what makes this case unique. Has that ever been done before? This idea of the familial DNA um, as the way to find a serial killer. It kind of has um, the the uh, the way that he was identified. Familial DNA searches had already been used in California. Um, there was a case called the Grim Sleeper case. Uh, but this was sort of a different method that had never really quite been done before, uh, using a, a different type of DNA marker that really had only been available uh, for about five years or so at the time that it was used. Um, and it could trace uh, people out much further than had ever been done before. And it was mostly used for ancestry and uh, family tree type stuff. But um, until recently, if a cold case investigator had a DNA sample from a crime scene, they had to hope that the perpetrator or close family member had committed a crime before and had their DNA uploaded into an FBI DNA repository system called CODIS or one of the state-run databases. Uh, not anymore now that a DNA sample can lead to the creation of an entire family tree um, with, this, with these new markers that are being used and the identification of a distant relative. It's really not as simple as running through a database, of course. Um, there, Distant relatives are identified through matches. It, it builds out. One of the initial worries about using this, and this is where this case was, is one of the first, um, is that when this case goes to trial, this method itself will be put on trial because it hasn't been used, hasn't been used extensively even now um, since the floodgates have opened. But the longer this trial, uh, this particular trial takes, the less likely um, this will be a hang up in trial. In Washington state, a suspect named William Earl Talbot was identified through this method after the Golden State Killer was identified. And his case just sailed through the court system and reached a conviction without this method being challenged at all. Isn't it? Um, isn't the case? However, there is a new problem. Go ahead. Oh, there is a new problem um, since this has come up last time we talked. And that's uh, there are concerns that this, met, uh, this method in the public sphere and those concerns have led to actions that have reduced its usefulness. Um, up until recently, this method has primarily been used on murder cases that were very old. There was a current assault case, though, um, not a murder case, and it was current, where the perpetrator was identified through this method. And now there was a concern that this, quote, that, quote lesser and lesser crimes um, would start to be submitted to this process. And it raised a lot of privacy concerns. The result was that the website that hosted this open source genealogical DNA data that law enforcement was using, they responded by requiring users to now opt in before law enforcement can use their data. Hmm. And it's drastically reduced the amount of data that law enforcement has access to um, on, these on these platforms. And we went from cases being solved every month to just a few handfuls of cases being solved now. So one of the things um, I hope to do tonight actually is, is get the word out that that people who believe in this method and don't have the privacy concerns and whatnot, make sure that they opt in on these platforms uh, like GED matches, the GED matches, one of them. The Would that ones. be like if it's you a developing situation, if you order the the um, DNA, uh, like you want to find out, I've never done it, but I've thought about it maybe this Christmas. My wife and I will order ours because we've talked about it where you can find out where your family ancestry is from. 
So I order that and then it would be in that process of buying that kit that I would give them permission to include myself in the database. Is, is that what you're saying? It depends on, on where you get it from. More private companies like Ancestry, uh, they don't allow law enforcement access to their database, basically. Um, there have been subpoenas and whatnot that they have responded to and some that they haven't. Um, but they typically don't. Uh, one of the, the, uh, basically you have to upload your genetic markers into one of the public, uh, websites, not one of the private ones. And I don't have a comprehensive list on which is which. Um, it's important to read the terms, uh, before. Um, I'm kind of a, a big privacy guy anyway. It's important to read terms when we start sending our genetic material places. Um, but pro basically, if you're doing one of those basic tests, it won't automatically opt you in. If there's an option to opt in, um, I would encourage people to do it because a lot of good has been done through this. Yeah, methods. I would I would imagine. Now, getting back to this, what I wanted to ask you was this whole matter of, of maybe this method would be challenged in the court. I want to make sure I understand this right. So if I understand this correctly, what has happened is it's still a needle in a haystack, but by using this method, the haystack gets really small. It's still a haystack and there's still a needle in a haystack, but once they're able to create a pool of, let's say, 10,000 people compared to like, you know, 300 million people that live in the U.S., they're able to, within that pool, start eliminating people until they get down to the final guy. And then they still have to have his personal DNA ultimately match. It's not just that, hey, there are 10,000 suspects and we just picked one of these out of here who seemed the most likely. It's not just guilt by association of DNA. It's the actual hit of his DNA personally matching up with the crime scene. Is Am I understanding that right? That's correct. They identify a viable suspect. In some cases, they go to this suspect and they ask for a sample. In others, they may feel more strongly about this individual being a uh, the the potential offender, and they'll they'll grab DNA through a legal method, like a discarded cup or discarded trash or something like that. And they'll they'll need a stronger match before they can arrest the suspect. And I guess that's what they did in this case. They went to his trash, isn't that right? They did. He he ran an errand at I think it was Hobby Lobby, and they grabbed some DNA off of his hand, uh, door handle, some touch DNA. I think it was something like a 67% match, and then they grabbed some trash, which was a hundred percent match, hmm. and that's how they identified him and arrested him. Now, before it was so interesting having you with us on the two different appearances, uh, because one of them, of course was before they got him, and then the other one was after. And I wanted to ask you in terms of, you know, the profiling that the theories that were there about who this guy could have been, there were a lot of different ideas, like that he could have been a traveling salesperson because of the large area. Tell us what some of the theories were, and ultimately, it turns out, you know, he was a police officer. Uh, tell us what might have been off in those possible profiles uh, compared to what we ultimately found out. If it, it turns out that, of course, this alleged this guy who's allegedly, you know, the, the killer is, in fact, the killer. There were a lot of uh, 
potential occupations. There were some victims that were identified through the the water company or that back-to-back victims worked for the water company and people thought, well, maybe he had some sort of association with that. Um, there were, were people who thought maybe he worked for the phone company um, because there were different people with ties to the phone company. Some victims worked at the same office in Sacramento. Um, there were people who thought maybe he had ties to education and government or nursing because he could find he, some of his, there were a lot of ties to, to some of these different professions. The interesting one, of course, that turned out to be correct was there were signs that he was a police officer. In 1976, at an early attack in Sacramento, he actually lost control of a scene and he instinctively yelled freeze, just like an officer would. Uh, and the gun he produced at that crime, and he hadn't produced a gun at, at one of these uh, East Area Rapist crimes yet, uh, as things were getting out of hand, it looked like an off-duty officer's weapon. And he wore what could have been a police officer's belt. And victims hadn't got that great of a look at him. Um, so this, these were kind of clues that perhaps he was a police officer. Uh, in one of the first tax, uh, attacks in Contra Costa County, which was, uh, I guess, October 1978 or so. It appeared that he had left a badge of some sort. It was a type used by security guards or maybe small-town police programs or special outfits. And the fact that he knew about forensic methods, the rules of evidence, statutes of limitations, how to escape dragnets, how to confuse tracking dogs, how to plant misleading clues, it pointed to somebody who was very forensically aware and he never left any fingerprints or anything identifiable. So there were a lot of theories about, um, did this guy have military experience? Was he an enthusiast? Was he a former police officer? Was he a current one? Did he have ties to the, the bases? Because Sacramento had a lot of military bases in the area. And he was described as have, walking with the military bearing in some cases and, and whatnot. So there were theories all over the place. And part of that was because he left so many clues. He, he told some victims, oh, I was kicked out of the Air Force. Um, and of course, it was a big Vietnam era. And a lot of people had ties to the military at that point. So that particular theory didn't really narrow the suspect pool down very much. There were so many different theories. Uh, everybody looked at the case a different way, uh, professionals and amateurs alike. And it's interesting to actually go back through it now and see these signs that he was a police officer and whatnot. Um, if D'Angelo ends up being convicted for these crimes. And those were some of the clues that really uh, resonated more than others. There was one other interesting clue, and this came up um, in an L.A. Times piece. Uh, they ran a piece this year based around an exclusive interview with a woman that D'Angelo was engaged to before the known crime spree started. The woman's name is Bonnie, which was actually a clue before the case was solved because there was one victim who was being attacked, but the, the perpetrator stopped for a little while and he began weeping and crying and saying, Bonnie, I hate you. He'd done this at some, uh, the same thing at some other crimes, but at those crimes he had said, mommy and stuff like mommy. I'm scared. Mommy is scared when this is on the news. But this victim was sure that he had said Bonnie. Huh. Investigators weren't sure if this was a legitimate clue or not, but it turns out D'Angelo was engaged to a woman named Bonnie. 
in the LA Times piece, this is where they stepped in, a reporter named Paige St. John got an exclusive interview with uh, Bonnie for the LA Times. And uh, the series is called Man in the Window. And uh, what Bonnie revealed was that D'Angelo was a thrill seeker. He uh, trespassed on corporate property to hunt. He could be cruel to dogs. Uh, and this uh, this was more telling. Uh, another clue, um, during intercourse with her, he would often back away, walk around the room, and return. Uh, this was something peculiar that the East Area Rapist Golden State Killer did as well. Uh, the biggest revelation was that after they were engaged, he pushed her to cheat on a college test and she broke the engagement. At night after that, he went to her bedroom window, held her at gunpoint, and attempted to kidnap her. And she was able to summon her father, who spent uh, a couple hours calming down D'Angelo and convincing him to leave without further incident. Again, this was before the known crime spree. Uh, the police weren't involved. It's a fascinating insight to the guy's thought process. Obviously, uh, Bonnie wouldn't have any way of knowing um, that he would become uh, a serial offender, that these were even clues to the serial offender because there were thousands of different clues. Nobody knew which ones were true or not because he was throwing red herrings everywhere. Uh, there was really uh, no way, nobody had enough puzzle pieces to put it all together. But um, there were some signs that he was a police officer and that was a common theory um, among some people, but it was impossible to prove uh, for sure. Now, there was a several year uh, break in, in the attacks, and this is another unusual feature of, of this particular case. Um, do, do we now have any more of a theory why there was a break? Because that's not typical, as we talked about in the open. We have a really good theory now. Uh, if D'Angelo ends up being uh, convicted of the Golden State Killer crimes, um, his last, his second to last known attack was around uh, the time that D'Angelo's wife was having their first baby. It's not really known if fatherhood is what brought a stop to these killings or not. But the, the, the attack before the gap was right around the time that they were having their first baby. Uh, the Golden State Killer committed one more murder five years after that and that attack was again situated around the time they were that he was about to become a father hmm. uh, with their second child it's a very curious correlation here um, there aren't any known events after that uh, they've got two kids on their hands d'angelo is no longer a police officer um, so he doesn't have access to whatever information he might have been getting he maybe doesn't have an excuse to go out at random times anymore um, D'Angelo had a third child several years later, but there aren't any known incidents surrounding that one other than he, uh, the Golden State Killer made a mysterious phone call to a former rape victim, and the, the, the victim told the police she was sure that it was her attacker who called her, and he had been silent on the phone for a little while, um, and that happened around the time that he was becoming a father for the third time, so... We're looking at changing circumstances and possibly triggers of, of some kind. Now, of course, obviously, no one, his family, wife, kids, nobody's responsible in any way. And these are just psychological factors or maybe even coincidences that are at play here. There's one other thing that happened in the middle of the gap. Um, and that is, this is actually pretty wild. In March 1983, D'Angelo was in a parking lot near Sacramento in the afternoon, and he got into an altercation with somebody. 
D'Angelo claimed that all he did was honk at a motorist uh, in a parking lot. The guy came over and attacked him. But supposedly some heated words were exchanged beforehand. And keep in mind, this is two years into the the break and three years before the break ended. Um, it happened during that apparent uh, five-year gap. So apparently this other motorist grabbed D'Angelo behind the neck with both hands uh, during their argument and rammed his head into D'Angelo's face like a move from a Hollywood action scene. Yeah, headbutt. Then D'Angelo, yeah, exactly. Uh, D'Angelo, then, the guy accused of bashing people's faces in with logs and wrenches, keep in mind, had the audacity to sue this guy. He wanted, I think, um, $25,000, claiming that he had suffered a strained neck and loose teeth. And it's a disgusting irony because three years later, the Golden State Killer hit a girl in the face so hard that she swallowed her own teeth. And DNA at that scene matches D'Angelo exactly. So by the time the, this lawsuit went to court, the guy that D'Angelo, um, the guy that hit D'Angelo was unavailable because he was a French citizen and he had gone back overseas. And the court awarded D'Angelo, um, I think a few thousand dollars, which he was never actually able to collect because the court didn't have jurisdiction over the guy that um, he had had the altercation with. <laughs> What an irony that that would happen. And the other thing, yeah. too, the, the, the other thing, too, that I, I found so fascinating about this case were, were the phone calls. So the last crime takes place, if I understand it, like in 1986. But yet he makes phone calls, according to uh, what I have here, he made a phone call as late as 2001. And you think to yourself, and now that everybody's comparing notes, there was one as late as 2017. Really? So he, yeah. And the 2001 call was interesting because it, it appeared that he would be triggered by things in the news. And what had happened in 2001 was that DNA had tied his Southern California crimes to his Northern California crimes. In April of 2001, that news broke. Before then, people didn't, weren't even sure that these crimes were for, for uh, the same guy. He was that careful as far as how far he was offending and, and how, changing just enough. But the news broke, and then I think less than 48 hours later, he called a former victim, and she was sure that it was him. And it, it appeared that some of these later uh, news stories have been triggering him as well. Now, most of the phone calls that happened after that point were the hang-up variety, where somebody would call, hang up, somebody would call, just sit there, maybe breathing softly. And he would do that to a lot of his victims before he would attack them, way back in the 70s. And then former victims were starting to get these calls again. Victims who would go out and advocate for this case and share uh, information. Um, some of them were getting these types of calls um, and and the, the interesting thing is before a lot of this news broke, uh, people didn't know that that was part of his M.O. So nobody could be faking that they were, oh, I'm going to just be a, a nasty person and play this joke on this poor person because that part of his M.O. wasn't publicized until fairly recently. Wow. It's just fascinating. And he was arrested in um, D'Angelo was arrested in April of 2018. There's not a lot in the news about 
like what's going on with the case. I did some, you know, Google searching this week and all that. And there, you know, a little bit of uh, information here and there. But is it basically just sort of in the discovery phase and there's not really a trial date set or any of that? I mean, he's claiming he's innocent, I'm assuming, and there's not going to be a plea bargain. He's trying to go to trial and, and get away with it. I it appears that way. So little has happened. I could probably catch you up in a couple minutes. Um, uh, let's see. The public first saw D'Angelo a couple days after the arrest. Uh, he was in a wheelchair at that point, heavily sedated for that appearance. Um, the DA then fought and won for the right to take additional DNA samples and all over body pictures to compare to witness descriptions. Uh, then the defense began struggling um, to ban cameras from the courtroom and media coverage in general, which they've not been successful with. They claim it would influence witnesses, prospective jurors, and hamper ongoing investigations. But the judges have really issued no restrictions, um, and it's been a fairly open process. There's not a lot of publicity because there hasn't been a lot to talk about yet. Uh, there are a litany of charges against this guy now. And uh, the amazing thing is, is they don't even begin to encompass everything that the police have tied to him at this point. Um, he's being charged with uh, the known homicide offenses, of course. There's 13 of those, many of which contain DNA that uh, is is matching uh, his profile. Five of the 13 murders don't have DNA, so that those won't be as cut and dry. Uh, then the DAs who had the East Area Rapist activity in their areas looked long and hard at some of the other crimes that uh, the the Golden State Killer has been tied to. Most of them were uh, part of that series of 50 home invasion rapes that took place in Northern California between 1976 and 1979. Uh, only three of them had evidence saved that could be tested for DNA. All three matched the, the profile that matches D'Angelo. The problem with these was that the crime, when the crimes were committed, the statute of limitations for rape was only six years. Uh, past 1985 or so, no one could have been prosecuted for any of the East Area rapist crimes where there was no uh, capital offense. So this is where the prosecutors got creative, and they found that the legal window for prosecution had not run out on a violent crime called kidnapping with attempt to rob. And uh, this meant that in any of the cases where the East Area rapist forcibly moved a victim and stole something or intended to steal something, he could be charged. Part of, his, part of his MO, of course, was tying victims up, moving them through the house, and stealing cash and personal jewelry. The DAs chose 13 of their strongest kidnap with intent to rob cases, and they charged D'Angelo with them. So now he's facing a total of 26 crimes. So he's... Wow, it's amazing when you think about all the statute of limitations. And, uh, you know, I went to law school. I know why those are there, but it still seems unfair that he could get away with those some of those rape cases because they were so old. But that's just how the law works. Have there been any um, individual victims that once it became public that it was Joseph James D'Angelo allegedly is the Golden State Killer. So that goes public. Are there any victim accounts where they said, uh, oh, my God, well, I that was my neighbor or that was a guy that I saw at the hospital all the time. He was a police officer, somebody who kind of made that connection that someone that they had known, they knew it was him. Um, but because he had disguised 
Uh, he, did he let them all see him fully, uh, his face and everything when he was attacking them? Or was it that some of them didn't actually physically get to see him at the time? He did everything he could to not let people look at him, even in a mask. He would shine the lights on their faces. He would blindfold them. He would say, if you look at me, I'll kill you. Right. Uh, now, some victims did get to see him in a masked state. When he was identified and this hit the news, uh, I have not heard of any uh, victim uh, of the canonical Golden State Killer crime say, oh, I know this guy from somewhere. Some have said, oh, I have a relative that may recognize his voice, um, something like that. But nobody said, oh, he was my gardener or something like that. Hmm. Um, it's it, Which was to be expected. One of his... Uh, one of the, the reasons he stayed free was that he was attacking strangers, people who could not identify him. And another thing he was doing, he was attacking people in the next town over from where he operated as a police officer. He worked as a police officer in a town called Exeter, which is a few miles outside of Visalia. And he worked as a police officer in, uh, oh, I'm blanking on Auburn, uh, which is in the far northeast part of Sacramento several miles away. So he was commuting a ways to commit these crimes, which was another way to put distance between him and his victims so that he couldn't be identified or even turn up in a dragnet of suspects. But if I understand it right, he did have some information on his prospective victims. He wasn't just driving the streets crime of opportunity. Is is it correct that he did pick people out some way to to go and victimize them he had to have yeah he there was some sort of extensive stalking that he was doing on some of his victims um he knew their routines he knew their names he knew where they worked uh where they went to school um if that was a factor uh one of the ways he did this was through this those hang-up calls he would call neighbors and then hang up just to see when they were home. It's suspected that he did that. Uh, he would look through windows. Um, people would catch the, the massacre of the train looking through windows sometimes. Um, he would extensively stalk from afar to using whatever information he could get a hold of. Um, we don't know all of his methods, but we do know that he had a lot of information on some of these victims. There was one where he went in and called her by her nickname, which was only spoken in the house. Um, there was one where he knew a victim's particular fetish, so he must have observed her um, uh, through the window or, or something. Uh, it's, there were some victims that he may have stalked up to six months, and there were some that were a bit more opportunistic, where he was looking at a geographical area, and he thought, all right, well, this person's available on this night, and I'm going to hit this house. And there were some cases where it looked like he was going to hit one house and he just went next door. The tracking dog, you know, saw him, saw that or sniffed that he was all around one house and then just followed his trail over to the house that he ended up attacking. Uh, there were a lot of different methods that he used. And that was another way that he kept from being caught is he didn't use the same methods over and over again it seems like he varied it and he switched it up just like he switched up geography and he switched up masks and clothing and whatnot 
Um, he did everything he could to keep from being identified. And was there a strict victimology? So was there a certain type of, of woman or couple um, age-wise, socioeconomic-wise um, appearance um, that he would target? There didn't seem to be. Um, he attacked victims. I think their ages ranged everywhere from 12 years old up to 41. Um, he did attack people on a little bit higher socioeconomic scale, but that seemed to have more to do with the types of areas he preferred to operate in. Uh, a little bit further outside of town, a little bit quieter, uh, freshly built a lot of times. Um, it seemed that he would go and scout floor plans of houses that were being built and then would attack the people who would move in there. It seems he did that a couple times. Um, but there was no real way of knowing. One of the, the more famous cases is a victim who was 12 years old and her mother was 56. And uh, the victim thought, there's no way our house is going to get hit. I'm too young. She's too old. And of course, he entered the, the home and attacked them. And um, so there was really no way of knowing. And that was part of the terror that the area was in at the time because there was no way of knowing if you could be next. And now that he has been caught allegedly, is there any more thought about this long period of time where he ostensibly retired? It'd be a terrible word to, to use, but from from all of this, that he uh, last crime was like mid 80s. And then he goes all the way until 2018 is when he's arrested. Is it uh, the case that in recent years, people report him to just be like that old guy that quietly lives in his house and doesn't bother anybody? Or are there uh, stories of eccentric or otherwise dangerous behavior in the last couple of decades? We hope that he stopped. We really hope that he stopped. Um, there are a couple blanks, at least to me, in the late 80s of where he might have been and what he might have been doing. Um, not a lot of personal anecdotes from that period of time. Uh, around 1990, he became a truck mechanic uh, for a large grocery store cha uh, chain. And his life seemed to be, it's, it's a lot more known and stabilized. There have been neighbors that have said he's weird, uh, he's angry, he curses. Um, he was married throughout the entire uh, Golden State Killer spree. Uh, from 1973 until the divorce that was finalized just this year. Uh, they were separated for, for a couple decades, but um, he and his wife apparently um, would fight publicly. Um, their, their, their neighbors and friends who have said that. Um, um, there's one neighbor who said that uh, D'Angelo killed his dog, um, the, the neighbor's dog. Um, there aren't a lot of stories coming out of the woodwork like you would think there would be. It, it, it appeared that he tried to, you know, stay on the down low. Uh, it's hard to, it's really hard to say, um, if there were any you know, signs in his personal behavior that mirror anything that, that took place during his crimes. Um, but it, it's his, he's not as weird as you would think. You know, before the arrest, uh, the, the person that you would picture is not exactly a D'Angelo type. 
Um, he was married all the entire time, uh, three kids, one grandkid, uh, stable job uh, for uh, several decades. Um, it's, it's really uh, disheartening that this was just somebody's neighbor, not somebody's coworker, uh, somebody's father and grandfather. Um, there, there weren't so many overt signs and weird incidents um, as you would think. Not, not as many as you would think. Well, you know, it, in, and again, a poor choice of words maybe, but this guy was so ingenious at how he reinvented himself and moved around. Maybe we still just don't know what he might have been involved in in the last 20 years. I mean, maybe. That's the fear, because once DNA came out and he knew about it, he could have changed tactics again. And there could be a lot more to this story. Wow. Wow. On real story. And, and uh, Keith, I have to tell you, you do just a tremendous job of explaining all of this. And uh, we want people to know, too, that the prior two interviews with Keith Comos about the book, Case Files of the Golden State Killer, East Area Rapist, those are also in our archives. But if you want to get the book, there's actually two different books. Can you explain that uh, to our listeners and how they can get in touch with your website and tell them about the two different books for those that want to take this to the next step? Sure. The first book was called Case Files of the East Area Rapist Golden State Killer. It was written before the arrest. Um, me and several partners had compiled a lot of information and uh, figured that this offender could still be alive. Um, it would be great to see him caught while he was still alive and identified and get closure for all these these victims who are many of which are entering the final stages of their lives and just wrap this all up. So we put out as much information out there as we could. The first book is uh, 650 pages, I think. It goes through the case files uh, attack by attack, each one. Um, and then the second one was already in the works when he was identified. Um, it's called uh, Secret Origin of the Golden State Killer, uh, Visalia Ransacker. And it goes through the Visalia cases one by one. And what you can see there is the evolution of what this guy became. Uh, there's little hints uh, of all the different types of crimes he would later commit. And it all ties together. And it also includes the first murder that he's been charged with. So all of that is, is um, available. Uh, the place to keep up with the trial and what's happening now is Golden State Killer Trial. Com. I contribute to that, and that's where you can find all the latest uh, hearings, the next hearing dates, um, how the discovery process is going when we get updates on that. Uh, the pre-trial hearings, which have to take place before the trial does, are due to start hopefully next year sometime, and it's going to be a, a more lengthy process and a little bit more involved because the fear is that um, not all the people who need to testify will be available by the time uh, the trial starts. And D'Angelo is wasting away um, in in jail. So it there's they're really trying to get this thing fast-tracked. So there are a lot of uh, big things coming. We hope to see this thing put to bed so uh, the victims and family involved will hopefully at least feel a little bit better um, that that is behind them. Absolutely. And for those that want to get the book, if you go to Amazon and you just type in Keith Comos, that's K-O-M-O-S, Keith Comos, 
you'll find um, both of these books. And I just want to make sure that that comes up when I do it here, just to make sure we're giving people the right information, because I did that earlier today. Yeah, so if you just type in Keith Comos, you'll see both books will come up, Secret Origin of the Golden State Killer, and then Case Files of the East Area Rapist Golden State Killer. And the website, again, to follow the trial is goldenstatekillertrial.com. Is that right? That's right. And Keith, do you have anything else uh, in the works? Uh, another case that you plan to embark on, or are you just going to focus on this one for a while? There are a lot of uh, little cases I'm dabbling in, uh, a little bit of television I'm dabbling in, um, helping uh, some shows along, uh, a lot of just behind-the-scenes stuff right now. If there's ever an opportunity uh, or uh, a need for a case to get some really mega publicity that might push it across the finish line, um, I'll be all for it. But for now, it's a lot of uh, research and passing things along to law enforcement. Very good. Well, you're doing God's work. We really appreciate you being with us. And uh, we'll uh, this will go out tomorrow on about 20 different podcast plot platforms as well as our YouTube channel. And I'm sure you get several thousand exposures beyond what uh, we had tonight with our listeners. And we encourage people to uh, get copies of these books. You know, folks, there's a, there's a great lesson that you can learn from these in terms of protecting your family. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why we cover these stories. Keith, thanks again for joining us, sir. Thanks. Great to talk to you. God bless. We'll talk to you next time. You know, people have said that to me, Jim, <laughs> you're the Christian finance guy. What are you doing talking about serial killers? And of course, if you go to our YouTube channel, to our iTunes, to our Google Play, uh, to our Stitcher, uh, SoundCloud, all the different places, uh, iHeartRadio, where this show is syndicated, you'll see a lot of uh, discussions, a lot of interviews about serial killers. And it's because I really think there's a lot we can learn about keeping our family safe. I also think it's fascinating when you look and you see the real evil that is in this world. I know some people don't believe in good and evil. And when you see what some of these people are capable of doing, oh, I'll tell you what, it really does uh, make you think twice before taking chances out there in the vicious world that we live in some of these monsters and to just think of your precious family that you want to protect and to just understand what some of these people are capable of and to do everything you can in your power uh, to protect yourself and teach others around you to protect themselves and to be very, very smart and savvy uh, as they are out in this uh, world. All right. We hope you enjoyed this broadcast. Uh, again, asking for iTunes reviews. Please help us out on that. Uh, run over to iTunes, write a little review. It'll take you less than a minute and it will greatly help the show. Remember, if it's Sunday night, it's Jim Paris live. We'll talk to you next time. So long, everybody. <laughs>